Welcome to the Red Life Podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark Kemp, multi-dawn author and founder of Side Street Cookie Publishing. Join me on a journey to cultivate our dream lives and careers. New episodes are published every two weeks. All right, Gisela, um, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your journey to get where you are. Well, uh, I guess I am an author, not necessarily a best-selling, best-selling author, but an accomplished author. And uh, well, how did it all start? Um, <laughs> it's really funny. I grew up in a small Austrian city, not really like the Heidi scenario up in the Alps, but I was, um, I grew up in the um, uh, foothills of the Alps. So there wasn't really much going there. And um, on top of it, I grew up with a terrible burden. My father was the principal of one of the schools in town or respectively uh, of a school that was in, uh, on the surrounding mountain. And when you have a parent who is a teacher, respectively a principal, and on top of it, a strict principle. You can never do anything like a prank or <laughs> mischief or something because inevitably you will be watched by somebody whose kid your father has reprimanded. And when your father then meets this person, they're going to say, guess what I saw, what your kid did. So long story short, my three siblings and I grew up never being able to do a prank or even like going to the movies and see watching a movie that we weren't supposed to watch because somebody was going to tell my dad. So uh, the only thing that I could really do was go to the library and read books because nobody, nobody checked what I read. And I actually read the entire children's book section and young adult section uh, till to when I was 12. I had read the, every single book in the entire library. Oh, wow. And uh, I read all these adventure stories. And uh, like there was Carter discovering Tutankhamun's grave and the mummies and Tohayata crossing the Pacific on a, on a life raft boat and all of this. And I was like, and I mean, even uh, the astronauts landed on the moon and I was seven years old. Right? So basically, I came out of this in the recognition, Jesus, everybody has already discovered everything that's great, and basically, I am too late. And of course, I realized it wasn't my fault. I was born whenever I was born, and I didn't think uh, through this whole concept that there would be uh, better research methods and better tools to find more stuff. I was just like, okay, I can't become an archaeologist because everything has already been discovered. And I can't go to the moon because somebody's been already there. And basically the only thing that was left over was to discover the planet because the planet didn't run away. So I was going to be an adventurer. And though I first contemplated briefly to become a marine biologist, eventually I settled on the world of movies. And I was going to be a production manager and uh, I was going to get an Oscar. And that was that. So I worked in the movie industry and um, uh, as my hobby, I traveled in between. 
And there is some wisdom in this to be found, even though it sounds stupid. Basically, I worked 60 hours a week. I also studied on the side in college. And whenever the college was off, and on top of it, I wasn't shooting a movie, I was traveling. And though it seems stupid, or I never considered the thought, today, it wouldn't be possible anymore. Because let's just say, right now, Americans can't even go to Europe because Europe has closed the borders. Yeah. But even if you traveled somewhere else and you had to quarantine for two weeks before you could even see something, right? right. Then you, couldn't, you wouldn't be able to travel. Now, of course, that's gonna go away at some point. But even the 911 restrictions, like that you have to be two hours at every airport before you even can fly off. So there is a lot of uh, uh, problems that have been added to this since I was in my 20s that I never anticipated. And basically this goes like to the essence of your show. If you feel that you should do something, do it now. Neither 911 was foreseeable, nor the uh, COVID crisis was foreseeable. But if one as an entrepreneur or as um, just in trying to, to, to live up to one's uh, hopes and dreams and executing one's hobby, if one doesn't do it now, later on, it may be very complicated to do the same task that 10 years before would have been really easy or I would have taken a limited amount of hardships in order to, get, to reach that goal. So I traveled in my 20s uh, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this and basically all of Europe, which was easy because I bought myself an interrail passport, which is a European train ticket and you could sleep on the train. So I, this was like all cheap travel. I, uh, <laughs> I got on the train uh, went wherever, and in those days, train stations had shower rooms. So I slept on the train, and then I arrived wherever, and I rented a shower room, which was like for three bucks. You could rent the shower room, shower, clean up, and then carry on, see the city, hop on a train the next night, go somewhere else, uh, shower in the morning, see that city, and that's how I traveled to all of Europe, which is like really awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> and then I... <laughs> In between, I also traveled to the United States, and at the time I was engaged to a young filmmaker, and I decided I was going to go to Hollywood and become a movie producer. And of course, I couldn't afford that, right? right? So I was looking for a way to do this, and I found a way to do it because the Austrian Film Fund Commission uh, gave everybody who worked five years in the industry and who also graduated with a master's degree from the university. Uh, a one-year stipend and basically they paid one year in college and they gave you 800 bucks per month for free. Now this was in the 80s, 800 bucks was a lot of money. Yes. So uh, I, I was going to do this and um, so I started and I carried on and basically it's all doable. If you just focus on the stuff and you eliminate the distractions, it's really possible. You can squeeze a lot into your day. And then right about the time when I was about to graduate, uh, I met my husband. And he was an aerial photographer. And at the time he was taking, um, he had been taking for 17 years, pictures of Austin factories and uh, office buildings and that kind of a thing. 
And he wanted me to join his company. And I said, no, hell no, I'm not interested in taking pictures of factory buildings. That's <laughs> Give me a break. So I kept working in the movie industry. And then he came up with this great plan that he wanted to do an area photography book about Vienna. And I said, no, wait a minute. Now we can talk. That sounds like interesting. Right. So I left the movie industry and I got involved into publishing. And it was essential. And I would recommend this to every entrepreneur to really get down to the nitty gritty. I visited printing uh, facilities and binding facilities and I ran around and I really learned the industry from the ground up, what's happening. That doesn't mean that I operated a Heidelberg machine, but I stood next to it and I watched how they did the offset, uh, how they aligned the, the, um, the, um, the print layout for the offset printing and all that. And I really learned a lot about this. And once we had done the, Austri the Vienna book, uh, it was like really very successful, a very successful book. So then we got married, had two kids, and in the meantime, published a book about Austria. And if you so want, at that point, I was living my dream. I was either working like a mule or doing nothing. <laughs> Uh, basically, I lived part-time in Austria and part-time in the United States and um, either working on the book, working on a new book, uh, or living in Florida, visiting the area, playing with my kids at the beach and so on. And um, then my husband died, which uh, alludes to your second question, uh, what is, um, you know, when you're forced to make a change. Right. I think uh, people sometimes um, don't anticipate change, like what's happening right now with the recession right. that basically rolled over us. And we've just had a recession a decade ago. So there isn't actually one due at this point. But this right. COVID crisis just tore us in. And as a general life principle, I think we always have to anticipate the change is coming. And even more so now than it was like 20 years ago. The world is turning faster and on top of it, what happens somewhere else affects us. Because if this would have happened 100 years ago, that Chinese virus or that virus would have been stuck in China, mm -hmm. uh, it would have taken half a year or a year till they would have even come to the United States, uh, or maybe even longer. So at this point, and, and I mean, my husband dying, well, I mean, there is, I don't know, 16,000 car accidents a day or something like that. It, it can happen to anybody all the time. So basically, everything that we do every day is a building block for the emergency that something happens. Maybe a recession, uh, an environmental disaster, I've lived through five hurricanes, not really big ones, but still there's always destruction and uh, that occupies you and damage and problems. So everything that we do every day is um, a building block. And uh, I basically uh, stumbled into the whole change thing when suddenly my husband's dead. I'm a single mother of two. Uh, I have a job. I mean, I got myself a job. I was teaching but suddenly I'm the only one who handles everything. Right. And uh, 
people think that it's so easy to date after your husband died and you always hear these stories. It's not. I mean, for me, it was particularly difficult because in, in Kilago was a very small place and everybody knew my husband. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, no, no guy wanted to date me because my husband, <laughs> well, my husband was an extremely good looking man. And on top of it, he was an amateur boxer who kept in shape. I mean, he was like walking around like a, right. a small version of, um, of, of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> bare chested. And people are like, well, you know, if that's guy, <laughs> I'm not even competing. <laughs> right. <laughs> that didn't work out too well. Um, but then I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, there I tried to date a lot. And the end was that I had like four relationships, which all didn't work out. And um, the one thing that I always knew is, I was not going to get into a relationship just for the relationship alone that I have somebody because I know a bad relationship is worse than no relationship. Right. So that just ended up like that. And um, yeah, uh, basically, I think I, if, we, if we plan our life or if we try to plan our life, we need to see every single day as a building block A to get what we want. Every day is a chance to get what we want. And uh, the other day, the thing is, everything that we get should also be a building block for the emergency. Um, I, most people don't know, but I've had TV, since my husband, my husband, had, of course, had a TV because he watched sports all the time. But ever since he died in 2000, I've had a TV. I've had TV only for five or six years when my kids were teenagers. And uh, then I turned it off in 2009. And um, the way how I see it is, TV is a huge distraction if it's not geared towards that you watch what you want. So you rent your movie on Netflix. Okay, that's the movie you want to watch. You lie down in front of the TV and see what's up. That's not good. Because <laughs> you're not making the choice. You're seeing if somebody offers you a choice that you want to settle for. Right. The way how I see it, every day you have a chance. It, that goes even for the news. I mean, do you really know, need to know everything about Ghislaine uh, Maxwell? Probably not. Because you weren't involved with her and she wasn't involved with you. And <laughs> And we could care less what she did. It's the, the lawyers need to worry about her, but we don't. And basically, every day is a chance. Every day that you don't watch TV is a chance that you don't settle for the movie somebody else made, but right. make your own movie, respectively, live what could be your biography movie. So I've always made my entire life the choice that I wanted to write my own movie script rather than watch somebody else's. Right. Unless that was a decision that I purposely made. And I think that's one of the most important things in life, that, that you make your own decision and don't fall for what everybody else is offering you because they only want you to play a part in their movie. Like if you're a Hollywood movie producer, is his, his life's movies 
that he creates a movie that is being watched by millions of people so he can write in his resume, my movie had an audience of 12 million people. Right. But if you watch it, you're becoming a player in his movie because now you're one of the 12 million. Whereas right. if you do whatever it is, what you do, you wrote your own script. Yeah, I think, I mean, TV is definitely, definitely one of my biggest uh, distractions. Well, I mean, it, 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 the other, just recently I read a report about the recession, you know, like the, the article basically addressed, addressed the issue, how should people save now, or what should they do now that the $600 are being turned off for them? What should they do? And there were like various calculations and uh, to my other, and like I said, I haven't had TV since 2009. To my average May, I saw that these calculations are for saw $100 for TV. So let's just say this is the number, and I don't know if there is different, um, uh, different services at different prices, but let's just say that's the number. If you save those $100 for an entire year, you got $1,200. That's a nice trip. Yep. That's a nice trip to New York. That's yep. a nice trip to Miami. That's a nice trip to LA. If you save those $100 for two years, that's a trip to Hawaii or Alaska. Yeah. And, and, and really, I mean, you always rather see things in relationship. What is it, what they want, what is it, what I want. And um, like I said, I mean, when my husband died, I was thinking back at these travel escapades of mine. And really, uh, if I say I was on the road, so to speak, three to four months a year, that's not an under-exaggeration. <laughs> I was like, I was like I, I met, the, the cool thing was that at my university, they gave me a lot of leniency because I worked with the two best movie companies in Vienna, Satellfilm and Vegafilm. So they allowed me to take a lot of credit for that work, which I did. And basically I was shooting a movie, coming home at night or on the weekend, still writing a paper for college, racing by the university, dropping it off, running back to the scene, shooting movies and what have you. Then dropping by at the university, bam, a break came like, I don't know, Easter break or something, mm -hmm. uh, energy week uh, or whatever. And I was already traveling. <laughs> <laughs> And um, with respect, and I look back and I say, like, for instance, last week it was an, or yesterday it was announced that Chief Bezos made uh, $12 billion, I believe, last week. Wow. That's a staggering amount of money that nobody even can imagine what it looks like. Right. And uh, I did not engage in these adventures. But one of the things, for instance, that I accomplished was I managed to travel to Tibet in 1980, January 1987. And this was a huge adventure at the time. A, you couldn't talk to anybody. Nobody helped your traveling plan. There was no internet that you could check anything. It was like literally uh, a little bit better than Heinrich Hauer who walked there. At least I could fly there. But, but even that, <laughs> and then, you know, I lived on the circumstances that, that, I mean, the hotel didn't have heating and uh, there was no water and, or you had water only two hours a day. And, you know, it was like really very, very original still. So, and, but one of the highlights was 
The Dalai Lama used to live in the Padala and his room was on the top floor, which is 312 feet high. Wow. That's like a hundred meters high castle. And wow. the mountains already. So the whole Padala is at an altitude of 12,000 feet. So basically if you fly in like I did, you started off at an elevation of 400 feet and two hours later you were 12,000 feet. Wobbling knees is not an expression. (laughs) (laughs) No oxygen and your body has to adapt to all of this. And it's not like you can do a sprint of 100 meters only. I mean, it's, it's, it's really rough. But I trained for it, and uh, so on the fourth day, I finally climbed the Parola, and because I was there in January, there were barely any tourists there. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I walked up all the stairs to the bedroom of the, par- of the, of the um, Dalai Lama, 100 meters, 312 feet. Wow. And then, because I had started early, I was the first person up there alone by myself and I meditated in the Dalai Lama's bath, uh, bedroom alone by myself. Then of course a few years later the Chinese made their second Tibet, Tibetan invasions and basically they changed everything and they realized that uh, the Dalai Lama's uh, castle was so to speak a tourist attraction and today they are, they are basically guiding 2,500 tourists every day through the Padala. Maybe not mm-hmm. now because of COVID, but last year they did. Every right. single day. So forget about meditating in the Dalai Lama's bedroom. It's like, and over there <laughs> is the bed, and over there is the window, and let's swoop over there and check out this, and we're gone. Everybody, right. That's what it is. So I'm looking at this from my perspective and I said, wow, Mr. Bezos was busy learning how to manipulate uh, stocks and currencies and um, I don't know, making plans to set up Amazon or whatever he did. I was traveling. But even with his $10 billion, he could not buy what I had. Because, Because in the meantime, the Chinese plastered the flag of the communist country over the entrance of the Palala. I mean, it's a sacrilege. It's like horrible. And right. I was there before all of this happened. I was there before Richard Gere became a Buddhist. <laughs> so, so that's what I mean with building blocks. Every day you have a chance of doing something that 10 years later will be unachievable but other people. Right. It will literally be unachievable. And it doesn't matter how rich these people are or whatever they have accomplished. You pocket it, that building block, and nobody can ever take it away. Right. And that's, I think, not stressed enough. All these self-help psychologists always tell you what you want to do in the future and what have you. And and how you should look for your plan and, and plan your immense successes in 10 years from now. No, that's not true. Every single day, you already got the chance to do it. Even okay. if you go to Paris Mountain State Park and you hike to the top or whatever, 
uh, in three months, there could be a landslide taking down that hill and you could never go up there again. Right. So I think if you look at it from this perspective, you become incredibly powerful because you realize that you got it already. It's only up to you whether you actually do it. And if you then decide on skipping, uh, playing that video game or watching that movie and you do that, you got your building block in the bank. Right. When you're struggling, what keeps you going? What motivates you? Well, I mean, I, I, I too, like other people, use like music, you know, play. And then usually when I write a book, I always have one soundtrack, which is not always the same soundtrack and that, that kind of carries me through. But in the end, it's the, the real motivation is making a difference. Like the 12 years that I raised my kids alone, I mean, talk about hardship. I mean, it was like every day was something. And there was nobody you could turn to. All my relatives and my late husband's relatives live in Europe. So whatever it was, I had to tackle it alone. But of course, my motivation was, I'm doing this for my kids. I have only these two kids. So I better do it. And uh, even when I wrote the books, uh, I wanted to make a positive change in the industry. And so I think in the long run, it's always making an impact. It's about making an impact for somebody else, either somebody who's really close, like your family or your community, like your authors, your local business friends, whoever. And then of course, on the long run for the world. Right. If you, if you focus on this is now my chance to produce a building block that will help my family or that will help my community or whoever. Then you feel incredibly powerful, even in a situation of despair. I mean, I, read, I once read that even the people who were in the concentration camps, they, they or some of them, wanted to live so they could tell their story. Right. And, 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 and basically they wanted to warn and, 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 you know, say, you know, there's danger and we have to and this and that. So, I mean, everybody is a mission. And in theory, when you sit in a concentration camp, I assume that uh, it must be, you must be feeling like smaller than the ant that crawls through my yard, right? Mm -hmm. You have nothing and everybody, mm -hmm. everything's against it. But if you manage to survive and you can tell your stories, then you get to be powerful again. Right. So every day is a building block. Um, what do you consider your lowest moment or your biggest failure? Um, what did you learn from that moment or failure that still pushes you now? <laughs> well, in, um, like I said, I, I used to live in Key Largo where we, where my family lived. And eventually I moved away from there and I decided I was going to move to Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, I didn't want to go too, too far from the South because my kids had never even seen snow. So <laughs> I took the thought of I'm moving to Chicago, the windy city and it's minus 40 in the winter and my kids have to go to school was out of the question. Right. So 
moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, and as soon as I got there, I realized that I had lost my safety net and I couldn't find a job. I literally could not find a full-time job with all the qualifications that I had. And then I settled for a part-time job, which was nicely paid, but it, I just one of the big issues that I had was that I didn't provide health insurance and I had two kids. I mean, any day, one of them could have uh, had an accident or something like that, and mm -hmm. that, that would have thrown me totally out. So in all of this situation, I walked into Felix Kinko's at the time, and I was faxing resumes. <laughs> I tried to find a better job. It was like really horrible. <laughs> and the manager came and chatted me up. And she's like, okay, what kind of a job you're looking for? And da, 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 and this and that. And I mean, here I am, I have a master's degree, I speak two languages. I have all kinds of awesome accreditations and what have you. And basically she offered me a job as a shipping specialist, FedEx mm -hmm. specialist, for $9.67 an hour. And did I want to take that job? Hell no. But my daughter needed braces. Mm -hmm. There was no way around it. I mean, she needed braces. So I knew at the time that um, big corporations like FedEx have excellent health insurance. So I said to myself, well, why don't you take that job and, you know, see that your daughter gets braces and we'll figure out the rest from there. And uh, that happened, and a month later, I was with my daughter at the end of the day, and said, well, we can't wait another year. I said, hell no. He's <laughs> <laughs> getting braces right now. <laughs> and, uh, but once I was there, I, um, I went into that job of shipping specialist as if this was the career for the gold medal at the Olympics. I mean, I learned all of that stuff and I knew it by heart. And the manager liked to see that. And three months later, by chance, this was a huge move for chance. But again, it only was possible because I built the building blocks every day that I said, I'm gonna be the best FedEx shipping specialist in this freaking nation. Right. So um, three months later, FedEx decided that they were going to have a specialized subject matter expert at every FedEx Kinko store in the entire nation because they wanted to launch various shipping programs and they needed people who, um, who followed this. And the assistant manager of that store wanted to have that job. And it didn't come with any pay raises, but it came with all kinds of educational perks. Mm -hmm. And the manager said no. Isola is going to take that because she knows that stuff. Right. So I got this position three months after I started, which was like amazing. That's amazing. And it came with, uh, like I said, there was no pay raise or anything, but it came with educational perks. Like every two weeks, I had to participate in a conference call of the subject matter experts and the various international shipping specialists about all kinds of shipping matters hazardous shipments, international shipping, one-day shipping to Beijing, and on and on and on. Uh, document creation, and this and that and that, every two weeks. In a, on a, on a small, in a small view, you could say, hey, this was so cool. I didn't have to be in contact with customers who might be irate because I sat in that little conference room and conference with these people for an hour, right? Right. And get my coffee nice and easy 
But on the other hand, it was like learning stuff from the top FedEx experts who were assigned to do these conferences. It was every two weeks, somebody else. And if you so want, I, I executed this career for $9.67 an hour as if it was getting promoted to partner in a law office. I mean, I was on that. And then, but th things didn't really move far. So I, I think 14 months later, I got a chance to become uh, the pre-construction services coordinator at a, at a very well-known local construction firm. And I took that job. So um, at that point, it would have seemed that I, so to speak, wasted 14 months with being a shipping specialist, right? Right. But lo and behold, a year passes and I could already see trouble on the horizon because since I was also the vice president's assistant, I knew that the construction industry was going down. I could see that we won projects that the banks didn't finance. And so uh, that was right at the time when I had TV for a short time. And you saw Henry Paulson, oh, Fanny and Freddie is fine. And I yelled at the TV, are you crazy? There's a recession coming. Banks <laughs> are shutting down. What's wrong with you, you idiot? <laughs> so, and indeed, in May 2008, I suddenly was laid off. Because uh, construction firms always suffer the most in recessions, and there I was. And because I had this insider information that I knew that the banks weren't giving them companies the money to build, I didn't even sit one day in uh, unemployment. I mean, I could have gotten unemployment, but I, I, did, I, I didn't even, well, I got one month of uh, severance. But uh, I didn't even relax five seconds. I was looking for a job as if this was my only job. I think uh, I wrote resume six hours a day. And I got a single interview in <laughs> three and a half weeks of looking. That bad things were ready and wow. nobody knew about it. And this only interview that I got was with an NBOCC that's a non-vessel carrier, non-vessel carrier, um, ocean freighter, ocean company. I had never even shipped a container. <laughs> I mean, I had never even looked at a container, if you so want, right? right. So I'm interviewing for this job. And first I interviewed with the lady who, um, was the department head and she was really very, very nice. And then came the feared vice president of the company who was also the oldest daughter of the owner. Mm. She sat down and said, <clears throat> I hear you're an international shipping specialist. And I said, yes, ma'am. I was the subject matter expert at FedEx um, who handled all related matters. And here's my boss's phone number. You can call her and she will tell you that I knew all shipping related matters better than she did, even though she worked for the company for 27 years. Right. She said, great, when can you start? <laughs> <laughs> and that was that. So I had this job suddenly and I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the cool thing was 
because I had learned so much at FedEx about hazardous shipments and bill of ladings and all these things, I could wiggle my way in the right direction. Right. I didn't know exactly how to do it, but I had enough building blocks that if somebody said the right thing, I said, ah, that's how you do it and so on. So lo and behold, the recession burst down on the United States. And literally half of my girlfriends, all of those who worked, with the exception of the two they were teachers, lost their job. Mm. And all of them were struggling. And I had a job which wasn't particularly well paid. I made less than I made at the construction company. But I could get by. I mean, mm. I was speechless. I could get by. And um, I was actually in a better position than people who had had a career and this was all because of the job with the $9.67 an hour. Right. And so what I'm saying is, is so very often our help comes in disguise. And if we accept everything, every, every opportunity or every chance at creating something as a potential building block, it will pay off in the long run. Right. When I took that stupid job, I was thinking of my daughter needs braces. That was really my, <laughs> that was really my only motivation. And right. In fact, I was right on that too, because um, she, she, wasn't, uh, she wasn't out of the braces yet when I um, switched to the building company. So I tried to transfer that contract to my new dental insurance. And they said, hell, you're not getting a cent. You already got more than you would have ever gotten without. <laughs> so but if you saw both of these things work out. But, but what I'm saying is by taking this job, I was able to launch a completely new career. Right. And survive one of the worst depressions in this country just because I had accepted that challenge. And I think that's something that a lot of people overlook. They, for, and I think it may also be very important right now. People say, oh my God, you know, I lost my job and now I have to work at CVS or I don't know what. Yeah. There is a chance in everything that we see, literally in everything. Uh, in a way, on the positive side, it was of course also when my husband and I decided to spoke. I mean, I was very settled in my career in the movies. I was a production manager. I went on set. I gave orders. Everybody ran. Everything was wonderful. And I mean, the, the, the perks in that industry, of course, are great because uh, they, pay your, they pay your car, they pay for your car, for your food, for your hotels, for your everything. I mean, and, and, and there's always money left over. I mean, if you don't drive a Maserati, you'll have money in the bank just from saving from the car money. And uh, if you don't eat uh, a steak every day, you will have money over for the food and for the money that's allocated for the food that you eat and so on and so on. And I use that for traveling. But when uh, my husband said, hey, you know, maybe making, doing this book is a great idea, I jumped at it because it made sense in my world. And then later on, I managed to turn this into a career as an author where I published over 20 books and my work got featured in a success magazine and, you know, entrepreneur and I was featured 
uh, on Bloomberg and a Bloomberg reporter even flew to my house and so on. And this was all because in the beginning, I accepted the challenge of learning how to create books from the ground up. Right. So we need to see um, hassles as opportunities uh, because if we accept the hassle and the challenge, we do what 95% of people don't do. They say, oh my God, that's hard. That's not making me any money. I don't care. Well, what would I ever need this for? And all these kind of things. So because 95% of the people don't do it, the 5% who do can turn it into something. Right. It's automatically. It's not, you can't lose with it. Because there's always more people who skip on the opportunity than the ones who take it. Right. It has been my observation that confidence is severely lacking in the excuse me, in the uh, the creative and entrepreneurial spaces. Do you struggle with confidence and what advice can you offer to encourage our listeners to build confidence? Confidence comes from building little successes. Right. I cannot tell, describe how down I felt when I accepted this position with the MVOCCM for water. This is a family business. Everybody who had been, I think the person who had worked at the shortest before I hired there, worked there for six years. I had never even shipped a container. Right. He was like, really? And on top of it, I felt this enormous stress that if I lose this job, then I'm going to be out of work and there will not be any job because since I had applied for so many jobs in these three weeks preceding that interview, I knew there wasn't anything out there. It wasn't like my imagination or I guessed or whatever. I actually knew there wasn't anything out there. Right. So every day when I came home from work, I was so dumb that I went and didn't enter the house but I went into the backyard and I had these two beautiful maples there and I sat down under the maple tree and I cried because it was so much stress. And of course mm -hmm. the stress was amplified by the recession. I mean, right. you turn on the car radio and I said, and in today's report, another 600,000 people lost their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> this nonchalant business voice. And I was, <laughs> oh my God. Let me not join these crowds, right? What do I have to do? I love this job. I will <laughs> succeed. Right. right. But basically, when you're faced with such a scenario, and I mean, at that point, it's like really war. Everything is against you. And it was even to the point that I said to myself, even if I was married, that would mean I would, it would be better off because I had friends who are both spouses well, unemployed, and they had a kid. And all that meant was that there were more people to feed with nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like that I, I, was, I felt that my situation particularly disadvantaged me. So in, in a situation like that, which unfortunately happens more frequently these days, you know, yeah. uh, Every single success that you have is a building step. Like, for instance, I used to ship a lot of furniture 
to Saudi Arabia. And uh, the person who explained how to handle these shipments was not very good, was not very good at explaining. It was like mm. putting a puzzle together. But I realized that furniture shipments were easier than other shipments because it's well, wooden furniture, real oak and real maple and what have you. So at least it wasn't hazardous, it wasn't heavy, and there wasn't anything to be cooled or chilled or whatever. Right. Uh, there weren't any terrorist threats, no metals, nothing had, they could even x-ray it if they wanted to. So it was, among all the shipments, a relatively easy shipment. So I started out doing that. And I learned how to do those. And at least every day when I went to work, I said, hopefully I have another furniture shipment. Right? <laughs> because then I know that's already done. Right. And, and then the other strategy that I employed was I learned relatively quickly that even though I was there, so to speak, totally outnumbered with lacking knowledge. I mean, I was like, really? I, I, I knew the least of everybody. I knew the basics. But I want to say maybe like 15, 20% of what I should need. Right. I realized relatively quickly that these people weren't good communicators. All mm. the uh, shipping experts, they were just like, um, do this, do that, da 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 But they were not polite or not, um, not suave or whatever. <laughs> I was good at that. And coincidentally, the first year when I worked there was a year where we had a lot of hurricanes and what have you. That posed a problem for the shipping industry because ports were closed, trailers became unavailable, containers became unavailable and stuff like that. And I simply with pure communication skills always got that last container or I talked somebody in kicking out another shipment and I got mine. Right. And of course that improved my standing and I also, uh, communicated well with the recipients and the shippers and they're all like, oh, we love her, we love her. So this kind of like made up for, um, for my lacking uh, knowledge as far as how to execute these things quickly. Right. And um, that's a strategy that everybody should employ. It doesn't matter what they do. If you hire today in the, in the transportation industry, nobody asks for your communication skills. Absolutely nobody. They want to know if you know how to do bill of ladings or what the restrictions are, uh, how to import hazardous goods into, I don't know, Germany or something. So nobody asks for your communication skills. But if you make your strongest suit work, you can carve yourself out a niche where you're better than everybody else because nobody else has these skills. So right. you automatically shine uh, because you have an additional halo if you so want. And it's, it's basically, was it Arthur Ashe who said, work with what you got? That's really a ruling principle. Mm -hmm. Improve on your specific talent and bring that in as a skill that makes you just more outstanding than everybody else because you're the only one who has it. Right. I mean, it goes even as far as languages is concerned. Let's say you speak a foreign language. Well, then in that company, you're the only one who can handle these shipments to that foreign country because you, know, you speak that language. It really doesn't matter what it is. Uh, as long as you consider what you have, a building block, you'll get ahead. 
Right. The red life symbolizes your dream career and your dream life. Uh, the life and career that you've always dreamed of, worked for, and fought for. What does your red life look like? Well, unfortunately, the traveling part <laughs> has become less possible than ever at right. any time in my life. Because even if the United States gets the COVID problem under control, that doesn't mean it's under control wherever I want to go. Right. So I'm afraid that's put a little bit on hold, but uh, I still have two targets. Alaska mm -hmm. and um, Machu Picchu. I definitely want to go and see Machu Picchu. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, there's a variety of others, but those two are the two musts. I also would like to go to Africa one time and, you know, possibly photo safari in Kenya, see the lions, see the elephants, see the zebras. That would be really great. Um, but other than that, of course, I still want to write that one bestseller. And I'm working on it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all, though? <laughs> well, but there comes an additional challenge. And it's kind of interesting because um, uh, for many years, after I wrote a very successful uh, biography, which is actually classified as, an, um, as a motivational book, uh, Naked Determination, 41 Stories About Overcoming Fear. I, a lot of people came to me and said, hey, you know, I want to write my biography and this and that and that. And basically, they just want to tell their story. And for years, I've advised people who wanted to write biographies that they need to add something uh, additional. Like, for instance, I didn't write my biography I made it a life skills book. And uh, recently I talked to a chiropractor who wanted to uh, write his biography and he basically was thinking that he was Italian, that his Italian upbringing and he wanted to tell about his Italian upbringing and all this kind of stuff. And I said, nobody cares, my friend. Uh, <laughs> but maybe you said, do you cook? Because I knew all Italians cook. Right. So, do you cook? And I said, well, see, then try to spruce it up, let's say, as a life skill book that comes with recipes or something. But right. just writing your biography won't do. However, I've changed my opinion a little bit because I think that biographies at this point may be more interesting than other books because we have read all the magician stories like Harry Potter and all the erotic stories like uh, Fifty Shades and all the time warp uh, stories and sci-fi like Wool and so on. We've read mm -hmm. them all. Trying to find a really new idea that hasn't been here is going to be really hard because uh, in the last three years, every year, more than a million books were published. Mm -hmm. So finding something that nobody else did is going to be wrong. However, at this point, more than ever, people are looking for strategies, how to conquer life in the face of unforeseen catastrophes like COVID. Right. And this story, if, if people have a solution how to conquer this, this story can be little, 
because it can be a story that plays out in Traveler's Rest, where a businessman found, or a businesswoman found the strategy how to keep their store running. Right. And everybody wants to know that. Mm -hmm. Of course, um, also, how to, let's say, be a nurse and not get infected, or whatever it is. People are now looking for strategies, so everybody who can write a biography with a strategy, not tell me how you grew up. Nobody cares how you grew up. Right. What did you learn during the time that you grew up that you can turn into a strategy to conquer this, this, this crisis? That's what people care about. Right. What they can apply for themselves. So that's also what I'm trying to keep in mind with this book. Uh, that I'm writing at now, which is top secret. But, um, mm -hmm. well, I mean, I don't want anybody to steal my idea. Right. No, I don't blame you. <laughs> and then, which is another problem. Uh, people are looking desperately for ideas. So you know, everybody's got to make sure that they copyright their idea and secure all their, their rights before they even publish it because the demand for ideas is so high. Mm -hmm. Because nobody foresaw this crisis and if, if you so want uh i mean phoenix struggled ubs struggled amazon struggled walmart struggled these are like the giants in the american business world right so obviously every small business is struggling too right but i keep going back to that everything that they do I see as a building block. Everything. Doesn't matter whether I'm traveling somewhere, seeing something, experiencing something, working something. In essence, everything is a building block. And even if it's not apparent why it makes sense to engage, I say it's like a gold bar that I have in my treasure chest. At some point, I will need this and then I have it. Right. And that's a principle that works very well for me. And I think it's very easy to visualize for everybody that all we need to do is just see our experiences as little gold bars that we have in our treasure chest. Right. Absolutely. Um, all right. So where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, I have my own website, giselahausman.com. So that's G-I-S-E-L-A-H-A-U-S-M-A-N-N.com. And of course, my books are at Amazon and many books are at other vendors too. Not all of them, but okay. they're all. And uh, yeah, I also blog about it, I blog about it and um, uh, various things, most often business-related topics, but I also wrote an environmental blog. And uh, that's another thing that I think uh, people and entrepreneurs sh should do. Like at the beginning of the, no, it was like last year already, I wrote a series of green blogs, mm -hmm. I mean, relating to the environment. And one of the ideas that I had was in order to save the planet, people could just stop idling in um, at various uh, American businesses, starting with fast food restaurants, but also banks, 
uh, laundry services, uh, pharmacies, unless you're sick, and then it's, of course, better you sit in the car, and so on. Right. And I tested this strategy, and, for instance, I drove to my local Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And it took me 8 minutes and 43 seconds to get a sandwich and a cup of coffee. Right. And I figured out how much CO2 had been emitted into the environment. And then I multiplied this and said, hmm, you know, if a million cars stopped idling, bam, we would see a difference. So once you have an idea like that, it's not particularly brilliant. It's just simply saying, nobody will ride the bicycle to work in the United States anytime soon unless they live really next door or have no other way of doing it. Right. So proposing that everybody should just stop driving a car is ridiculous. But if you drive to McDonald's to pick up your lunch, stopping in the parking lot and walking inside, where you can still read your smartphone and see what's happening while you're waiting for your sandwich. Right. That is a realistic idea. And if enough people did it, we would make a difference. So I did this and I wrote my blog. And it's online. And everybody who can, um, can check what the publication date was, and it was way before COVID. Right. So if you're someone, if you blog and you write down your ideas, then you secure yourself the right that you say, well, I figured this out before COVID happened and before people stopped driving. Right. I figured this out. Which makes you... A, more confident that you are clever and that you can find solution, but at the same time, it also establishes you as an independent thinker who can actually come up with ideas out of the box. Right. If I would have had the same idea and I would have blogged about it, well, then I can claim whatever I want to claim, but it's not, I can't prove it. So I think that blogging and is also a way of creating building blocks. Basically, you create a wall of ideas made out of building blocks of ideas where you claim your ownership. You had the idea. Doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you invented a trick how to do makeup faster or how to, I don't know, steam clean your clothes in less time or whatever it is. If you publish it, you claim the ownership. And nobody right. can take it away from you. So I think people should do that. Even if they don't have 3,000 followers or 30,000 followers. It doesn't matter. It defines who you are. Right. Uh, well, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. <laughs> Let's All do right. it sometime. What? Let's do it again sometime. Definitely. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you for subscribing to the Red Life Podcast. New episodes are published every two weeks. All music was provided by Purple Planet. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. It helps more than you know. Email us at sidestreetcookiepublishing at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions. And you can find me, Tiffany, on Instagram at Tiffany C. Kemp, Twitter at Tiffany C. Kemp, and on Facebook at Author Clark Kemp. I'm Tiffany, and this is your Red Life.